Hello, Phil Croshaw here again from Passions. And in this episode, we welcome Gillian Miller from the Gorilla Organization to the show. Enjoy. Hello and a very warm welcome to Passions. And in this episode today, I'm so delighted to be joined by Gillian Miller from the Gorilla Organization. And uh, Gillian's going to talk to us about her passion. She's just been saying to me she's had to think about it. So she's had a chance to think about it. So a very warm welcome to Passions, Gillian. What's your passion? And tell us a bit about yourself. Ah, okay. Um, I've got many passions, Phil, in, in truth. I think most of us have. If you have one passion in life, you're probably a very lucky person. Um, but then I think if you have many passions, you're lucky as well. And um, in, in one sense, I'm extremely fortunate insofar as in my life, so many of my passions have come together through my work and, you know, through my life's work, really. I've been working with the Gorilla Organizations for the Gorilla Organization for, you know, 25 plus years, <laughs> a long time. Um, I didn't start off as a conservationist and I was no more of an animal lover than anybody else that likes animals, really. But uh, I, I, through the kind of work that I was doing, I ended up in this job and I absolutely love it. And I go to Africa. I love working with the people. I love working with the animals. I love producing all the media and marketing. I can't think of a nicer subject actually to be dealing with. And I'm a person with a very positive personality. So it absolutely suits me to be doing stuff where I can see progress and hope for the world and success and what have you. So I guess that's my passion actually. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, no, absolutely. As I say, there's no right or wrong answer. It's, it's how you feel about it. So yeah. uh, on that basis then, um, obviously you, a lot of your work or dedicated your work in terms of animal side of things to the gorilla, to the gorillas. Um, why, why gorillas? Was that an absolute accident or were you drawn to them maybe more than other animals like cheetahs or all the other animals that need our help? It was... I wouldn't say an accident, but it was absolute stroke of luck. So very briefly, I actually trained as a graphic designer. And so not a scientific background, uh, not a conservationist. Actually, at that time, conservation wasn't even really talked about that much. Um, by the time we got to the mid 90s, when I was you know, a young graphic designer in the mid 1980s, we were starting to talk about the hole in the ozone layer. We were starting to talk about environment, but before that, um, anti-Greenham Common, you know, the, the issues weren't environmental issues in anything like the same way they are now. Um, but I was a graphic designer, absolutely commercial, working for companies, doing brochures, copywriting. Uh, I got to work in lots of different industries and I had a great time because I went freelance when I was very young, when I was 22 or 23. I was very lucky to be able to work, work from home. Can you believe it now? I had a 
studio in my flat and I worked from home and I worked freelance. But um, by the time the early 80s came along, um, I had a daughter and I got a bit tired of selling people's products for them. And I kind of lost interest, really. I was interested in my baby and my life. And, and um, I met somebody at a party who was driving for a charity. And uh, I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, th this person wasn't a love interest. It was just someone that I met. But um, he told me about this charity where they were making wheelchairs for handicapped children. And I was like, what a lovely subject. It was designed by, the guy was an engineer. His own daughter was handicapped. They had pictures of her at uh, a friend's wedding in her little electric wheelchair, all decked out with flowers. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. So I went along there and um, oh, marketing was horrible. It was really, really doer and miserable and bad typography and everything. And I was like, God, I can help you liven this up, you know, and I started to liven it up and I got drawn in. I got drawn into the idea that I could use my same skills and talents that I'd always used, but use them for a good cause rather than simply to promote somebody's product that I may or may not have been very interested in. I started off as a volunteer. I'd been working with uh, music business clients and, and it was the 80s. So I put on a concert in Battersea Park and uh, um, did lots of things for them. I thought, I really like this business. So um, I put myself on a crash course. I was used to being freelance. So I did lots of freelance jobs for different charities. Three months later, I was doing lunch at the Savoy for Princess Diana for drugs and alcohol. Uh, yeah, I know. I told me. Do you know, one of the things, just, just to interrupt very quickly, one of the things I keep coming across when I'm interviewing people is uh, moments where they kind of go, how did this happen? Was that one of those moments where you thought, hang on a minute, how did this happen? <laughs> what, that I was making Princess Diana? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was fun. Um, so then... Uh, um, the trustees of the guerrilla organization, as it is now, it was then called Digit Fund, which Diane Fossey had set up, um, actually advertised for someone to set up a fund, the, an office in the UK. And they were active in Africa. They had a branch in the United States and they had had an appeal in You magazine for the guerrillas that were in the midst of war. Um, they'd gone off and done a cover story and donations were coming in and people wanted to know more and they didn't have anyone to run it. So they interviewed various people and I got the job, which was astounding because everybody before that, I mean, generally astounding, not for me, um, because everybody before that had been a conservation scientist. But I think I brought a, a whole new perspective, having been in the commercial world, having knowing about marketing, knowing how to communicate an idea, although it might not seem like it now, rambling away, but um, that knowing how to communicate an idea was a real advantage. So uh, that's how I got started. 1992, opened the doors. And uh, well, end of 91, we planned our first newsletter with uh, Ian Redmond, who'd worked with Diane Fossey. Diane had already been murdered by then. Um, but uh, a small team of us got together at the Oasis Swimming Pool in Swindon, which is where the band found, was founded. We sort of stuck a pin in the map. We, we was, someone was in the Cotswolds, I was in London, someone else. When we were like, okay, we'll meet in Swindon. So that's where we met, designed our first newsletter. Um, I'd set up the office and then we opened our doors at the beginning of January 1992. 
So amazing. So was Diane Fossey the, the founder of Gorilla Organization? Yes, she was in a way. Um, uh, she set up an organization called the Digit Fund. Actually, I've got a letter, um, handwritten letter from her after Digit died. Digit was her favorite gorilla and he was killed deliberately, I think, to teach Diana a lesson. She'd made a lot of enemies by then. They cut off his head and his hands. It's in the film, Gorillas in the Mist, actually. And it's very, it's a true story. And Diane uh, was devastated and she wrote to her uh, friend who was the photographer for National Geographic who'd been with her. He was in Nairobi. He'd been photographing gorillas with her and he said, Did, she said, Digit's been killed. She said, what we need is a Digit fund to raise money for anti-poaching. And uh, so from that initial statement, a few things happened. And before long, David Attenborough was out in Rwanda. Ian Redmond was there assisting and uh, they came back to England and launched an appeal. Diane said, you know, the gorillas are dying. I'm going to die with them. You know, um, let's get some anti-poaching sorted out. And um, they launched an appeal. And that became, through various, you know, false starts and iterations and what have you, it grew into, I think in uh, the early 90s, we changed our name to the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. And because uh, the, there was a founder, a fabulous, um, colourful American woman who'd been a close friend of Diane's, and she was the one who hired me. And she came in, she said, uh, hell, Diane's more famous than the gorillas are. We're all going to change our name to Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. And then through various circumstances, by the early 2000s, I think 2006, we changed our name to the Gorilla Organization. Again, it wasn't particularly our choice. It was circumstances that led to that. But in a way, I quite like it because it doesn't tie us to one founder anymore. Uh, it ties us to an environmental green, hope for the planet, hope for the future movement. I like the name, the Gorilla Organization. You know, it's got a certain sort of power to it. Um, and uh, yeah, so... Yeah, Diane was the founder, absolutely very much so. And I've Brilliant. got all the letters that she wrote to her mum, you know, and uh, yeah, and we got some, when she, when, after she died, we also got some of her inheritance as well to help set the, not 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 a lot, but not, you know, not bad to help set yeah, the. Yeah, yeah. And you, and you said she was murdered, did you? I didn't know she was murdered, that's awful. I did not know that, oh yeah. No, um, no didn't. She, she wrote a book called Gorillas in the Mist, which she sold the film rights. Oh, she's no, she, the book was published. Yeah, she sold the film rights to it. Um, that's where the money came from, I think, that we got. She sold the film rights to it. And then before the film was finished, she was murdered. And she was murdered maybe by poachers. Nobody ever really got to the bottom of it. There was a, a, a student of hers was accused. Uh, some conspiracy people say that it was, um, you know, uh, the African governments who wanted to be rid of her. Um, I don't think that's anything more than conspiracy. Uh, the guy that they arrested was a Canadian guy, and he actually escaped uh, from prison in, in Rwanda. 
And I think he lives a very quiet life in northern Manitoba now or something like that. Goodness um, gracious. Yeah, they never got to the bottom of it. Actually, one one Hollywood um, bigwig did write a book about who killed her because it was never uh, conclusive. But certainly she was murdered. And so she's she's kind of gone down in history as a martyr for the cause. And, you know, she was she was quite ill. But she wasn't really old at all. Um, but she was quite ill before she died. She had emphysema and she had to have oxygen to get up the mountain and things like that. You know, she spent a lot of time in her camp in the forest, um, in, up in the mountain, but not necessarily going out on patrol to see the gorillas every day because she was fading fast. But you know, that was 1985. In those days, everybody smoked. She used to smoke loads and loads of cigarettes as well. You know, well, now we know. You can't go climbing mountains in your 60s if you smoke two packets of cigarettes a day. But in those days, nobody knew about that. Yeah. And it's, and it's not even that long ago, is it, when you think about it in the eight, the eight, mid 80s? It's not not that long ago. It's not that long ago to people of your age and my age, Phil. But honestly, <laughs> my, Julian, my... <laughs> Julian, I'm only 28. I've had a hard life. I know you look great on it. <laughs> um, OK, so. Um, how do you, you know, obviously the, there's a, and I, you probably won't, you may not know this, but I've actually done an interview with Ian, Ian Redmond. And one of the things we were chatting about um, was this whole thing about going out into these places and Rwanda and, and, and the jungle and everything you just, you talked about at the start. Um, is there still significant risk in doing that? And do you ever think about that? Is Or is the passion for what you do, does it override that, what might be a natural fear? It depends where you go. Um, mm. I'm quite shocked now at some of the risks that I took in the mid-90s. I do know about the genocide in Rwanda. Um, yes. That was in the early 1990s. So no sooner had we opened our doors in London and started saying, oh, we're saving gorillas, than this awful genocide happened in Rwanda. And that completely changed our organisation. Suddenly, instead of uh, raising money for the scientists that were observing the gorillas and carrying on Diane Fossey's work, they'd all gone back to their universities. And um, we were getting really good success. People were saying, oh, yeah, we want to, you know, and the magazine, the articles in the, in the New Sunday paper. Um, you know, it was getting a lot of support for guerrilla conservation. And I was like, well, where is everybody? Oh, they've all gone. You know, there's a war on. They've gone back to their universities. And I was like, I know I've digressed a bit here, but... No, no, no. I was like, well, where are the Africans? Um, and the people said to me, oh, they don't care about animals. And, you know, there's, no, they're not interested. Well, actually, that turned out not to be true. And um, I went out there and started to talk to people and found out that they were there. They just had no profile because they weren't, you know, in American and, uni and European universities, because they weren't with well-funded organizations, they didn't get any funding and they didn't get any position at the top table. And um, it's, they certainly did exist because we set up a platform, they call it in French a, 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 a platform. <laughs> <laughs> a network, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. Foncais. We set up a network. Well, six months later, there were like a hundred small conservation organizations came to this one, you know, big meeting that we had to kick off this network. And so they did exist. 
So I kind of went around with an imaginary checkbook and said, right, if the, by then we were Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. I said, if the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund Europe were to come and sponsor projects here, what would you like to see happen? And it was everything from, can you repair the plane that we got from the European Union 15 years ago and is defunct and we can't afford to repair it and it's never been used since, um, to can we have some sewing machines so the ladies can sew some uniforms for the men and what have you. So um, we actually set up, I believe, genuinely believe, pioneered community-based conservation, which is putting the power in the hands of the local people who live around the national parks. Now, we weren't absolutely the first. There were a couple of models that we could look at. Um, there was a thing called um, development through conservation in, um, oh, conservation through development, it was called in Southwest Uganda, which was a World Bank funded project. And there was one called Campfire in Zimbabwe, where um, they would sell hunting, this was a funny one, they'd sell hunting licenses to uh, American big game hunters to go out and spend $25,000 a time to shoot an animal or more. And then that money would go into the communities. But those were the only models that we had to look at. And so we developed this, this business of working with the local communities and empowering them. And I'm pleased to say all these years later, I mean, one of our successes is that I don't think there's an environmental organization in the world that doesn't at least incorporate community-based conservation at some level. So it's nice to have, you know, actually sort of changed. And that comes from, you know, coming in as an outsider. I think I could bring that because I did come in as an outsider. Now, your question about was I frightened? In those days, I was frightened a lot. Going up into the war zone with a convoy of 11 vehicles with the United Nations, with every one of us having a radio and an armed guard on our vehicle, you know, UN with the blue helmets and everything. A lot of danger in Congo as well. Um, and, uh, um, and that abated over the years. Um, now, well, I haven't been there this year now because of um, COVID. Yes, of course. Now, they're doing quite well on COVID because for year, they, they know a lot about biosecurity. In Rwanda and Uganda and DRC, they've had SARS, they've had Ebola, and uh, so they know a lot about biosecurity. And for years when I go in, I've had to go through, um, you know, somebody takes your temperature, you get confronted by a row of people in white, coats with those plastic things over their shoes and an iPad saying, have you been on a farm anywhere, you know? And even when you cross at the little checking point from Uganda into Rwanda, you go to a World Health Organization tent, they take your temperature, they write down your passport number and you walk through disinfectant before you go in. So yeah, but so I haven't been there because I, I'm not frightened of actually catching it there so much as catching it on the plane. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and then really, the broader question is, are you frightened going into the forest? On the whole, no. Yes, in certain parts of Congo, you would be. But then, because I've been going for so long, I have really good advisors, I have good staff. They make sure that I'm not going anywhere where I shouldn't be without proper protection and that kind of thing. So, no. Um, and for travellers, if the question is, is it safe for travellers? Again, that absolutely depends where you go and how um, good your uh, tour operator is in making sure, I mean, because there were tourists killed 
in um, DRC, in our, right in the middle of our area, um, the year before last. And, uh, you know, they were ambushed in, the, in their vehicle. They had a ranger with them as well. 24-year-old female ranger was killed. Um, so, it, you know, you've got, to, you've got to be careful. You've got to know what you're doing is what I would say. So, so on that basis, then, would you say that your passion for what you do and the cause that you're supporting, is that passion part of the reason why you overcome that fear? Because the, the natural thought process would be, I'm fearful of going there. It's dangerous. I'm not going. <laughs> so it, I, I'm just wondering, I'm wondering if your passion for what you do is part of overcoming that fear. Or are we more... Uh, simple than that is it that we don't feel the fear until in retrospect is it that you know you just carried along on a on a wave you you know yeah you know what you're doing is a bit serious yeah you know you've got these soldiers lining up to take your convoy up there but it's not until afterwards that you go crikey what was all that about you know we went up in during the war zone one time um, into the war zone one time with this convoy that i'm talking about mm. and um there was a curfew. We weren't supposed to stay overnight. And we got up to um, the little town where the, you go into the up to go to see the gorillas. Tiny little town in those days. It's a bit bigger now. And there was one hotel there and we stopped there and we had the breakfast and what have you. And the convoy was going on to Lake Kivu and it was going to come back. And of course, it had to pick us up late afternoon because we had to be back in the capital before it went dark. The convoy never came back and we didn't have cell phones and things like that. So we're trying to get radio connections and they got held up for something. And um, we ended up staying the night. And then the project manager, a Brazilian guy that I was with, got taken off for questioning by the police for the afternoon. So we didn't know if we were going to get him back or not. He did come back. We stayed in this hotel in the dark, absolutely blacked. I mean, we were literally under the tables, you know, for the whole night until the following morning when the convoy came by. It wasn't until we got back that we were like, yikes, you know, did we know that we were actually sort of putting ourselves in that danger? So yeah, you, you say that, but then, you know, you say that and all that's happening. And then as soon as COVID's over, you're back out there. Oh, so no, I know. It's not put you off. <laughs> no, 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 it hasn't. It hasn't. Yeah, during, the, uh, during the genocide, I got together some film people to go out and see what had happened to Diane Fossey's cabin because the, we had a message that had been trashed, that all the research papers had been destroyed, that the equipment had gone and what have you. So um, I went with a film crew, a South African film crew, and uh, the project, the American project managers at the time, and we went up into the mountains to go to Diane Fossey's cabin. And we made a film there that got shown all around the world. I mean, I think 100 million people saw it. You know, it was it was shown on all those early days of rolling news stations, every hotel, every news channel. Um, it was an interesting story. In the process, uh, we realized that one of the big silverbacks had not been seen. And we heard from the rangers that they thought he was dead. So we decided, actually, one of the photographers we were with sprained his ankle. So he had to get carried down the mountain in a stretcher, which is a very ignominious and embarrassing thing to happen. 
Um, like Sir Jan Chair, you know, carrying this big English burly guy down with all his camera equipment. <laughs> and um, we decided to stay overnight. So we stayed overnight in Diane Fossey's cabin. I got bitten by bed bugs. I had no idea what that was about. I never oh. want again either. Um, and um, the next morning we went out to look for evidence of Ziz. And it's a beautiful forest. It's a really, really magical forest. They use it for backdrops for Disney films. I mean, it is so magical. And um, anyway, we concluded that Ziz was dead and we couldn't find any evidence because evidence, they get eaten by vultures. It doesn't stick around for very long. And it was time to go. And uh, it was getting late. And we'd also run out of rations. And um, so I think we were sucking vitamin C tablets or something like that on the way down. Anyway, we got down the mountain and our Land Rover had gone. Uh, he had decided he couldn't wait for after Kivu, Kivu, the driver. So he'd gone and all that was there was this clapped out old Land Rover with a bungee cord holding the door on and what have you. So we went to uh, take that. Uh, these South African guys were good. They could fiddle around under the thing and, you know, start it, spark start it or whatever. And we set off driving into the war zone in the middle of the night, full moon after curfew. And there's like six of us in this little Land Rover. And we get halfway towards the first town and these soldiers leaning in. Oh, je désire, je désire, like this, you know, trying to intimidate us. And there's oh this um, religious South African girl, the presenter, she's in the back going, holy Jesus, Mother Mary. <laughs> all of this. Oh, and Glenda, the producer, she'd put off having a gallbladder operation in order to come and make, she was so excited, she'd put off her gallbladder operation to come and do this. So she's feeling really sick. None of us have had any food. And um, anyway, just outside of the, of the town, um, we swerve to avoid a cyclist with no lights and we end up upside down in a ditch. So that's a bit frightening. Uh, you, can't, you can't get a Land Rover upside down out of a ditch. It, we're on a plane. I still get shivers. Every time I drive across that plane now, I still get shivers. Um, the villagers started to come. They were really helpful. Before long, it was a scene from a movie. We've got people with big planks. They're levering this Land Rover out of the ditch. In the meantime, Glenda's in the field being sick constantly. Uh, the other girl is still doing her Hail Marys. And um, we get the Land Rover up and running. But the crowd, they want things from us. And we've given them all our hairbands and our posters and, you know, we've given them everything that we've got to give to be thanked. But there's like, you know, more than 100 people probably. And so one of the South African news crew guys, he goes, look, we've got to get out of here. You know, this is not going to get any easier. We better just jump in the car and go. We do. We jump in the car and go. We go another three miles to the other side of the town and we run out of fuel. The fuels all come out. It's all leaked out when we were upside down in the ditch. So there we are. It's now one o'clock in the morning. It's after curfew. We're, we've got 70 kilometers to go and we've got no fuel. The boys walk off to go and find the nearest military. They get there. The military are like, oh, come in, have some Coca-Cola. They're going, je suis les personnes. They've got no French, you know. Nous avons un petit accident. So... That we're in the war zone telling jokes, trying to stay warm. 
And this truck comes along, we think, that's it, that's it, we're going to get arrested now. And they've brought jerry cans and they've filled us up with petrol. So we do the next 70 kilometres. And by the time we get to our destination, which is at the Meridian Hotel at Lake Kivu, I mean, it is to die for. It was bombed out because of the war, but it's actually a very luxury resort. Morgan Villa everywhere, I couldn't see that at that time in the morning. And um, we pull in there. We've gone through all these roadblocks, scary ones, where they come with their guns because the soldiers are as frightened to see us as we are to see them. And um, we stagger in there and they wake up the cook and they make steaks for us at three o'clock in the morning. And we've peeled off all this, you know, muddy old gear that we've got on. And I've got Coca-Cola. I've got a shot of whiskey. I've got a steak. And I look up and there's a picture of Ian Redmond on the wall as well. And I'm just like, oh, what have we been through? What have we been through? We woke up the next morning, you know, in the lap of luxury on this beautiful lake with all these plants and everything. It was magical. Um, gosh, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you, actually. Um, just in terms of, you know, you said you had some, some business experience and just thinking about nowadays, if you like, in the modern age, how important is it for charities to get, to really understand how brand works and brand development works and marketing works. Yeah. It's very noisy. There's a mm. lot of people wanting different things from all the charities want things from people. Is mm. it really important to remain on the button in terms of marketing in the modern age? It is. And I think there's another factor as well, which I absolutely abide by which is doing it with integrity because we're a charity and because it's the public's money that they give voluntarily because they believe in what we're doing the idea that i'm going to show them some horrible picture of a baby gorilla with its hand in the snare but actually it's a photograph that was taken 25 years ago no um yeah uh yeah i get you it's important to do it with integrity our christmas appeal this year is beautiful we have because of covid i don't know why we've had a baby boom in uganda and we've had 11 babies born in the same period we might normally have had three or four so our christmas appeal has gone out going it's a christmas miracle and it's so positive it's so lovely and the message of course you always have to have a call to action and the message is whatever progress we make we're not out of the woods yet there's still only a thousand and sixty nine mountain gorillas left in the entire world so you know anything could happen and wipe them out a volcano a virus uh you know terrorism anything could wipe them out so um and they will be susceptible to covid by the way that's another story so but yes marketing when i first started the first t-shirt that i designed in those days there were um there were like not more than you know around six, middle 600s so i did a t-shirt that said um there are just 650 mountain, there are fewer than 650 mountain gorillas left in the world. And um, the scientists still went, oh, you can't say that. And I'm like, why not? And they said, there's 632. I was like, yeah, well, this is marketing. And if they have a baby, we don't want to have to redesign all our posters and t-shirts, right? So, um, so yeah, marketing's important. 
that, that's funny you should say that because um, I have the same I have the same issues to a point with the with the interviews actually because it's very difficult and in ridiculous to ignore COVID. That's such a, such a massive impact on so many people and so many lives and animals and conservation everything. Um, but at the same time, I always like the interviews to to stay as evergreen as possible, so mm. that if somebody's watching it in a eight nine months time a year's time, it's still relevant. Yeah, so there's a. I think there's an element of that as well, isn't there? Because it yeah. can become very irrelevant very quickly if things change yeah. and you spent a fortune on a video. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm ever going through our website, update. I mean, this is actually quite nice, really. Updating all the places where we say, you know, there's been another census. It was a thousand and sixty-three. Before that, it was eight hundred and eighty. You know, before that, it was and I. No matter how many mentions of it I find on our website, there's always one lurking in some downloadable PDF somewhere, you know, that you didn't update. So. I, I don't know how you possibly would keep on top of that. And, <laughs> and especially with all the different platforms as well. Uh, yeah. have, have you got on TikTok yet then, Gillian? Have you gone, have you gone TikTok yet? Not quite yet. My, <laughs> my 16-year-old niece, who's not far from you, actually, up, up there in the north, She's been doing, you know, what 16-year-olds do. Um, but, yeah, no, it's going to be another another big platform, isn't it? it we is. do Instagram. And um, actually, this Christmas, um, we've got an advertising campaign on Facebook. Well, it's tiny compared with, you know, other what other organisations can afford. And it's tiny compared with what commercial organisations can do. Um, but we put our toe in the water last year and we did it on Facebook and we did well. And we were going to do another test at Easter this year. But because of COVID, we thought, you know, we know Christmas works, but we wanted to know, would it work during the year? And I, well, this is not the right circumstances to test it in. So it happens that the money we were going to spend at Easter, we still had. So I went back to the agency and said, right, can we update the ads because we've got more gorillas than we thought? mountain gorillas and can we do another campaign it's doing really well and we're doing that on facebook and instagram and it's for people to adopt a gorilla and the film is absolutely beautiful all oh, this silverback protector you know their families like ours just a little 30 second film what's amazing about facebook is that uh, or this kind of advertising is that it's instant the minute you switch it on, people are clicking through to the website and, and buying them as gifts, you know, for Christmas. Some people who love gorillas just order, order, ordering them for themselves. You get a cuddly toy or a tote bag, you get a certificate, you know, and all that. As soon as you switch it on, you get responses. And what I noticed last year as well is as soon as you switched it off, they stopped. It was yeah. once. Yeah, so, no, it's, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And interestingly, when when clients say to me that you know, is, is there one particular place you think I should put my marketing dollar if mm -hmm. I have to choose because I'm limited? Do you know it's interesting you should say that because I always say Facebook ads is the place I would start because yeah, they're just the sheer, yeah. yeah the sheer depth <clears throat> and breadth of their data the sheer mm -hmm. depth and breadth of their understanding of the demographic. Mm -hmm. They use machine learning. So the mm -hmm. ad learns as time goes on and, you know, mm -hmm. it, it starts to recognize the sorts of people that are clicking and then we'll then put it in front of more of those types of people. Yeah. Very, very sophisticated. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because that's good evidence for me, actually, to, as, a, as an example when, when, I, when I'm saying that. Well, uh, so, um, Instagram's doing well as well, actually. Yeah. Yeah, very visual. I mean, obviously, those things are, are really visual, which is, yeah. which is good. And I guess, is it fair to say that you have to just continue to, continue to be more and more creative? It's almost like relentless, the, the need to be more and more creative in your marketing to cut through what is obviously a very noisy landscape. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got a good team, a very good team. We work together. There's like five of us and, and we're all in different places. So not all in, they're not all employed by us. Adrian does the data. You know, we couldn't manage without him working out who we need to appeal to. Kyra's the project manager. Simon's an award-winning copywriter. Uh, you know, guerrilla organization. I'm the client and uh, Mike's the designer. And, you know, it, it really works very well. And we're working on our first appeal um, for next year, where we're hoping to be able to say, you know, look what happened. We survived, you know, COVID. I mean, you know, no gorillas. Um, we should talk about gorillas, shouldn't we? I mean, no gorillas have caught COVID yet. And um, in, in this time, I don't know if you know, there was an Ebola outbreak, um, 2018, 2019. Yes. And, um, and we managed to protect the gorillas from that as well. Two and a half thousand people sadly died, um, but it, we managed to keep the gorilla population and the um, the um, human population separate. Um, the thin green line of the rangers, and uh, it didn't get into the forest. Well, in the um, I think it's twenty sixteen or something. No, earlier than that. Um, over in West Africa thousands of gorillas died of uh, Ebola virus. Um, they think maybe even 60% of the population of the Western lowland gorilla was wiped out by Ebola. It went marching through Gabon and Republic of Congo and what have you. So to have nobody die of it, in, no gorillas die of it in, um, in 2018, 2019, is testament to the biosecurity I mentioned earlier, how careful people are, how aware they are of being able to spread disease or not and now with COVID the same things we had a lovely donor um, who produces t-shirts and I said oh I need to get the ladies making masks because there's no welfare and to speak of and if people can't work and I was getting messages from project partners saying Gillian we're more worried we're going to die of starvation than die of the virus so I was like, right, we've got to help these people. It's part of our ethos of making sure that people are not depending on the resources of the forest and, you know, going in and risking taking disease and what have you. And this lovely donor turned around and said, oh, my baseball hat manufacturer has switched his production to making PPE masks. And I've ordered 10,000 masks and visors. I mean, that is a huge number for us. And I'm having them DHL'd to you. I mean, this was like a $12,000 donation. And we drew up lists of how we were going to distribute them with social distancing and curfews and everything. And um, all the rangers got them, all the wildlife authorities got them, the schools. We work in what we call the frontline villages. So those are the villages that abut the national parks, adjoin the national parks. And in those villages, 
we work in the schools with the children, we work with the women farmers, we work with the reform poachers, we have a beekeeping center, we work with the honey people. We're putting a fence around one area, which is to keep rogue animals in the park and stop them stomping all over people's fields. And I call it the bee electric fence because you put beehives on a, on a wire around the kilometers. And when the animals come, the bees fly out and then they, they go back in. Um, so working in those frontline villages, so all those people in those frontline villages, plus the local health centers got them. And um, they all got two each, they're washable, reusable, you know, they're not destroying the environment by cluttering up the drains and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, that was great. Why am I answering this question? What was the, what was the question? Well, well, I, well, I'm just going to say to you actually about the gorillas and, and what's fascinating me about is, is when you talk about the gorillas and the COVID situation, it's not something that most people would probably realize or think out think of and it's interesting that in a sense because our perception is that animals don't get covid pretty much yeah. you know yeah. your dogs or your cats or your ger gerbils or your hamsters um is it without stating the obvious is it because of the close genetic match between primates and ourselves that they are so susceptible to covid in in the same way that we are versus other animals it could be um, but remember, it started in animals, and then, and, and you know, it, getting there are, and um, you know, HIV. Uh, there's an animal version, a human version. Uh, scabies. There's an animal version, a human version. Um, gorillas get respiratory diseases. It's one of the biggest, you know, kind of natural killers of, of gorillas. They, you know, should they be living that far up the mountain in the cold and the damp? Or did they get chased up there in history? Who knows, you know, and they used to live at lower altitudes. But they do, they get coughs and colds and sneezes and they can easily, they can die of respiratory diseases. So we know they're susceptible. Yes, they're genetically very close to us. Um, so, um, and they call these things zoonotic diseases where one of my trustees, Dr. Gladys Kalema Sikosoka, who's a marvelous African originally veterinarian, and um, she actually runs an, an NGO um, that specializes in studying zoonotic diseases and the transference of disease between humans and animals. So if, if this got into the animal population, animals can't self-isolate. Yes. They, how right. you, they live in families. There might be 25 or more animals in a family. How are you going to send the silverback will protect his family if he thinks you're trying to you know, take his kids away or something, then, you know, he'll make it difficult for you to get by. What are you going to do? Go in and dart them all. That's not that straightforward. Um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to test it, if I'm really honest about it. No, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah. But we have to keep the people and the, and the gorillas apart because, um, you know, a silverback died two months ago. A really magnificent, lovely animal called Rafiki. And he was the head of his own family. And it's very nuanced. I mean, some people are saying, oh, he deserves the death penalty for killing a gorilla. It's much more nuanced than that. Um, when COVID came along, they, people were saying, oh, you know, we need food. A former poacher decides, oh, I've got my traps. I can go and get some antelope and sell it in the market. He's not gone in to kill gorillas. He's gone to set traps like a hunter anywhere. I mean, you know, there may be people in England doing it now, you know, who knows? Mm. Um, he's to catch meat and um but there are no tourists because tourism has been stopped so one factor the poacher's in there with his traps 
Another factor, the rangers are bored. They've been in the forest, they've checked on the gorillas. Gorillas seem fine, there's no tourists, they've gone home early. Um, the next thing, the gorilla, another nuanced point, he's been habituated for being visited by tourists. He's lost his natural fear of people. So he sees the hunter setting with his traps, wanders over to see what's going on. In the meantime, the hunter's dog sees the gorilla coming and panics. He panics and starts barking and yapping. The gorilla panics, the man panics, the man's got a spear and he's got a machete and the gorilla ended up dead. So, I mean, to me, that is absolutely tragic. And mm. that is a direct effect of COVID because that hunter wouldn't have been in that forest if he hadn't have known that there was a market out there for fresh meat because people were going hungry because they can't work. So yeah, that's fascinating story. Yeah. And absolutely mm. not as simple as, oh, he's a poacher. He killed a gorilla. He deserves to, you know, rot in jail forever. Actually, he got a very serious sentence. He got 11 years. So, I mean, and you know, and again, some people might say he deserved it, but then also he's got a wife and children. So yeah. Yeah, there, there lies the there lies the the quandary, um, and uh, yeah, funnily enough, Ian Redman said exactly the same thing, uh, which mm. won't surprise you. And yeah, he was no. saying exactly the same how, how there's a tendency just to vilify the evil the evil poacher, you know. Yeah. There's, there's more to it. Very yeah. often. Exactly. Okay, well, fi final question then. Um, what do you think is the general state of conservation? nowadays there's obviously been a lot of publicity about climate change in the last uh, year or two it was the kind of you know we've, we've had brexit and then we had climate change was everywhere and you know and then of course so that gets knocked off the front pages by covid there's always something new so, so what would you say is the over is, is there a lot more empathy for conservation is there more interest in it or not there is uh particularly through the activism through climate change. Um, uh, the activism draws a term, I mean, for example, one organization, um, uh, Trust Trust, I will name them because they do fund one of our projects and I like them very much. They've got Prince William as their patron. So Prince William interviews David Attenborough and, you know, a whole generation that may not, you know, suddenly they're tuning in and they're watching and they're getting the message, which is great. Um, on and, and these issues are becoming, like everybody's talking about wildlife crime now in a way that they weren't in the past. And they're really, you know, we always knew that there were the equivalent of drug barons, you know, these, these awful um, cartels that go in and, and kill rhino for the horn for the, I mean, gorillas, my goodness, a gorilla's lucky that they don't have, you know, a body part that somebody somewhere in the world thinks will improve their sexual performance, you know, I'm, <laughs> goodness. no, I'm, goodness, you yeah. know, not being hunted for, for those reasons. So, um, but yeah. you know, this, this program is about passions and what's your passion. And I think what, we've been talking about shows that my passion is actually at that intersection between the health of the communities and the health of the environment and the health of the animals. It is where they all interact. 
And I think that is really sort of what, what gets me excited. And more and more we're finding that one of the most economical and ultimately it will turn out to be one of the, the most effective ways of adjusting to climate change or learning to, to, to deal with climate change is to lift people out of poverty. Um, money spent on lifting people out of poverty is going to be equally, if not more effective than money spent subsidizing wind farms. Now, I know that's a very dramatic thing to say, but there's a lot of evidence around the world that lifting people out of poverty is going to be a major, major component to this world being able to uh, live with climate change. The history of the planet is about climate change. So, you know, whether we can adapt to it, uh, whether we can prevent it uh, is, you know, obviously the issue of the day. But this business of lifting people out of poverty, the gorillas will be all right. You know, there's a certain level of income that a household can have where they turn around and they say, these are our gorillas. You're not going in that forest. We don't need to go in there to catch antelope anymore. We buy our antelope in the market or, you know, our, our whatever, our hamburgers in the market. And um, people will defend their own environments at a certain point. One last thing. I work near a very beautiful Primrose Hill. Um, they will never build a shopping mall on Primrose Hill. Uh, the residents are too sophisticated. Um, they're... Uh, they own their own houses. Uh, the value of their house is dependent on Primrose Hill being that beautiful environment. Um, if it was suddenly built on, the value of their house would go down. So they have a stake in the preservation of that environment. And if there's anything that I am passionate about in this, it's, it's having people in the area where we work, preserving the gorillas, having a stake in the future of the preservation of that environment and the gorillas. Almost like sus sustain it for themselves, having, rather than having to always rely on external people coming in to fix it for them, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. And, mm. you know, it's a big, it, I mean, it's changed since I first started. It is a big international thing now, you know, and uh, the uh, African uh, governments and the African um, primatologists are, you know, on the top table in a way that perhaps they weren't 25 or 30 years ago, you know, so it's all good. Well, Gillian, thanks ever so much for joining me today. And thanks for sharing your, when you started off and you said, you know, you're trying to, as we were said before we came on air and we were talking about what exactly is your passion. Uh, anybody that's watched the, the interview, I'm pretty sure they've clearly can see your passion and not just, not honestly, not just for the animals, but also for people. That's mm. what is, is striking for me. It's the number of times you've mentioned the importance of people and the people in the process. And, 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 you know, and that's very, very clear as well. So thanks very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.